Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this show, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope. For Tuesday, January 31st, I'm Terry Aranga here with my guest, Dr. Devin Houston. Dr. Houston has been involved in several fields of research, including the mechanisms of how cells respond to environmental signals with work funded by the American Heart Association. He was an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, and he was funded by the NIH. Dr. Houston served as the Manager of Research and Development at the National Enzyme Company, eventually becoming the founder of Houston Nutraceuticals, which many of our listeners think of as Houston Enzymes. Welcome, Dr. Houston. Thank you, Terry. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I've often wondered about the clinical trials that are conducted to determine whether drugs are safe and effective. For example, With so many members of the general population having some sort of gastrointestinal problem or some sort of other health condition, how can we imagine that their guts will process drugs the same as the next person? That's a good question. Um, However, we have to keep in mind that clinical trials of of any potential treatment uh, drug or, or compound, the the people who conduct the trials will try to select, uh, or they're very selective in in the the population study. So unlike the general population, which is very heterogeneous in nature um, from cultural and environmental backgrounds, um, those people used in trials are actually a very uh, homogeneous group. And uh, as a result, you get an average effect. So problems that are with people with GI problems uh, as far as drug half-life, drug metabolism, can, can show up, uh, especially those drugs such as certain antibiotics that rely on gut flora to do some sort of metabolizing of the drug to an active form or an inactive form. And in that case, yeah, you're going to get some different results uh, if, depending on, on the extent of gut injury or gut problems. Uh, with that particular person. I was actually told by a researcher who's uh, currently over in another country working that for the uh, population of children diagnosed with autism, acetaminophen would never be a good idea. Yeah, we're finding some some interesting um, effects with the with the use of uh, acetaminophen. Um, I stopped using acetaminophen long ago. Um, now I, we're actually finding some results with um, uh, the metabolites of acetaminophen interacting with certain endogenous compounds found in the gut, in the gut and um, having some interesting effects which don't appear to be all that positive. So, yeah, I think, uh, um, it, unfortunately, a lot of the problems with any, any drug... Uh, that occur in the general population are not found until after it's introduced. And then, unfortunately, that's when you get all the, the dire warnings as, as to toxicity and side effects. 
Right. So we know that that acetaminophen depresses sulfation. It it de- depresses your glutathione um, availability, and um, you actually need glutathione for your immune system to actually fight any of the nasties that maybe you were trying to address the, uh, with the acetaminophen to begin with. So we know that it's not good for your, your glutathione and your immune system, and uh, it affects it for a while, but is that the reason it may not be good for ASD kids, or is it because of something particularly to do with gut bugs in general or gut bugs that are unique to the ASD population? Um, well, I think certainly its glutathione depleting effects are um, are going to be paramount, as most children with autism are found to be um, under oxidative stress anyway. And a single dose of acetaminophen can basically reduce glutathione complete glutathione stores within the liver very quickly. So um, it's it's not past the realm of possibility that um, you can get acetaminophen interacting with other pathways and other components. Um, In fact, uh, there is coming out now um, some interesting research that acetaminophen metabolites are interacting with um, endogenous cannabinoids that are found in the gut um, called anandamide. And it seems to be having an effect on, on inhibiting reuptake of, um, of these cannabinoids. So you're getting a prolonged exposure uh, to a, a compound that otherwise the body would metabolize fairly quickly. So that's just one example of, a, of an inadvertent effect of a, of a very widespread over-the-counter drug. You know, I read that um, in your your bio sketch about uh, your research on cannabinoids, but I don't think a lot of folks know what that really means. Yeah, um, that was the focus of my research at St. Louis University. I worked in the laboratory that actually um, discovered the re- that there was act- an actual receptor in human brain um, and, and gut um, that actively bound to uh, tetra- uh, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, and then we subsequently found that there were endogenous compounds um, that humans produce, much like we produce endogenous opiates. And um, it, it's, it's these, and it, interesting enough, most of these cannabinoids are, are, are sort of fatty acid components, so they're found quite frequently in the gut. And it also contributed to the fact that there's a gut-brain connection that's two-way, not just brain-to-gut, but as well as uh, gut-to-brain as well. So, yeah, it was a very interesting time of, uh, of research and one that I, I try to stay up with um, even today. Okay, and, and um, you mentioned opiates or opioid receptors. Which is it? There's a, there's a bit of a debate on that. Oh, uh, it's both, both words are correct. Um, I tend to refer to them as opioid receptors because there are compounds that are not actually opiates that can bind to this, that can bind to the opioid receptor. Um, opiates, to me, refer um, directly to um, compounds that that are like morphine, uh, that are true opiates. Uh, opioid is just a, a bigger, more generic, broad term 
to cover a, a number of compounds that that have opiate-like effects that are maybe structurally different from uh, from the opiates themselves. Yeah, that was my understanding too. So thank you for that elegant explanation. And we're going to talk more about uh, opioid receptors later and uh, effects related to that from different substances that you can get from food that uh, are, present children with a diagnostic label of autism with some problems. When we're looking at the diagnostic label of autism, what are the metabolic pathways or genes or differences in metabolic pathways or genes that could influence why some kids uh, do well while taking a given nutritional supplement or drug while others have a neutral or adverse effect? If I, if I knew the answer to that, uh, I think I'd be on my way to Stockholm to get the Nobel Prize. Um, well, that, good. You have, you have five but, minutes to give us the answer, so you should be receiving that soon. Right. Well, there are, there are many different pathways. Um, and the question is, I think we, we kind of work backwards because we, we see a, a you, you take a given child and you give them a, a certain nutrient or, or food, and you see a certain effect, and then you want then that anecdotal event or that one child experience is conveyed to to others with with uh, in the case of autism um, children with autism, and that parent then proceeds to to do the exact same thing, and in that child you don't see you don't see a response or you see a different response. So what's going on? Um, obviously. There are <clears throat> multiple pathways and multiple effects going on. Uh, more than likely, it, it genetics comes into play, um, and we'll get more into more involved in that as well. But um, things like their gut flora, um, the condition of the gut, how well they are absorbing any particular nutrient, um, and then on a on a microcellular level is is the particular active ingredient getting to the right cells, it getting to the right organelle within the cell, and then is it producing the right effect based on based on that person's particular genetic makeup. So we're not saying here that uh, something is, for example, a genetic e- epidemic, which is categorically impossible anyway, but we're saying that some people might not be able to tolerate toxin A, B, or C better than the next person is able to tolerate toxin A, B, or C due to their own particular individualized makeup. Correct. Um, we can look at, look at it on a macro level or a micro level. On a macro level, we're looking at a person's DNA or the particular genetic makeup. Um, that may be fairly stable between individuals, but we now realize, um, and it's coming to the forefront in the last couple of um, decades, that there are, are finer adjustments or mechanisms in place that, can, that don't change the sequence of the DNA or change the sequence of a gene, the nucleotides within the gene, but they are cofactors and they can affect hist- uh, proteins called histones that are wrapped around the DNA or they can, for example, modulate or modify a particular um, nucleotide within a particular gene. Um, called this is single nucleotide polymorphisms. 
And uh, there are events such as methylation, acetylation, phosphorylation that can occur that don't directly affect the, the genetic makeup or sequence, but it can, uh, it can activate or inactivate certain areas of these genes. And when that occurs, you, get, you change what that gene produces, or what we call transcription. So if a gene produces a particular protein, um, then the process of, of, uh, of changing or modifying that gene through, through some subsequent act, such as methylation or acetylation, um, either silences, keeps that gene from producing that, that particular protein, or it activates it when it produces that protein. And then you have a cascade effect of, of um, cellular pathways that occur, and which result in a, in a particular event. So it's, it's extremely complex. Uh, it's something that's get, that I've directed the last few months um, of my education, trying to learn more about. Um, raised as a, and trained as a classical protein biochemist, um, I'm getting into an area that's, that's a little bit different. The language is a little bit different. So, um, but I, I think it's where the science is heading, not just in autism, but uh, cancer research, obesity research, uh, cardiovascular health. So I, I think it's very important for all of us to, to develop an understanding of this. Absolutely. Personalized medicine is so important. We'll be talking more about epigenetics and gene expression when we come back, but the important take-home message here for parents listening is that um, individuals um, do have these pathways, these metabolic pathways, and um, uh, individual traits in their genetic makeup, and it's important to understand what's going on inside your particular child to know why certain things may have affected them adversely and to know what their makeup is so that you can go forward in an educated way using what will best help them uh, move forward, improve, and uh, go forward on the road to recovery. We will be right back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Devin Houston. Thank you to our sponsor, Oxy Health. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. 
If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston of Houston Nutraceuticals, better known as Houston Enzymes. What's the website? HoustonEnzymes.com. Okay, easy to remember. We were getting into talking about epigenetics and gene expression. Um, tell us about epigenetics as it relates to the influence of diet and environment on genetic traits. Well, the term epigenetics, I guess we should uh, define it as, as well. Um, epi means on top of. So epigenetics refers to something that goes on top of the gene. Um, and... What epigenetics um, is about is how environmental factors can affect uh, gene expression or gene transcription. It doesn't change the the, uh, the sequence. We don't. We're not talking about genetic mutations as such, but we're talking about things that <clears throat> can occur from uh, environmental exposures or dietary exposures. And interestingly enough, it can be transmitted. To the next generation. So, in this case, we're concerned about um, the the mother's environment while she's pregnant, or even before pregnancy. What is she exposed to that may um, activate or inactivate a particular area of a of a gene, and what are the consequences of of that? So, when we when a when a when a mom is pregnant. What becomes vitally important is is the fetal the fetus's environment within the within the uterus. So what mom is exposed to um, during those few months of uh, development is extremely important. And uh, epigenetics is basically how how short term changes can affect development. Um, embryogenesis early on in a fetal development, you have a rapid fire exchange of, of, of genes being turned on and off um, because cells are differentiating at a rapid rapid pace. Um, things are occurring very quickly. So the, the whole gene system has to be able to, to um, be ready to, to adjust to its environment, to factors that, are, that are, are affecting it. And so genes have to turn it off and on very rapidly. Um, so it's a very vital, crucial period in a, in a person's development, and we're just now under, trying to understand uh, what diet and environment, uh, what, the, what that role has um, in, uh, in things, not only autism, but um, in other areas as well. Let's go backwards a little bit more, and let's go forwards a little bit more. So you've talked about the fetal environment, and I have two other questions to follow up on that. What about what the mom was exposed to earlier on or what grandma was exposed to earlier on that may be translated over to mom, then how does that affect junior? That's going backwards a little more. And then going forwards a little more, in another family, junior comes out just fine and he's doing really well. And then how do subsequent uh, dietary substances or environmental substances affect gene expression to make the trajectory of juniors heretofore perfect development go awry. Right. Yeah, it's, right now, I think the, 
the stage of research where we're at is is such that we're looking at at um, two generational effects. Um, we're looking at what happened to a child sometimes years after 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 birth, and then we're going backwards to look at the at the mother. Um, some epigenetic studies involving looking at uh, genetic makeup of certain populations of of moms. Um, are finding finding things that um, they were exposed to or or nutrients they were exposed to, and because they have a certain genetic makeup or maybe just a certain change in their epigenetic construct that um, that is being conveyed to <clears throat> to their child, but whether that was whether that was a cause and effect is is debatable because we are we're now looking at moms seven to ten years after they gave birth, and then assuming that what we're finding now was constant back then when they were pregnant. Uh, one thing that's helpful is taking family history and understanding what her mother and even her grandmother, where did they come from, what particular area of the world or the country, you know, what what unique environments were associated with that region. Or their diet. Certain cultures have have different diets. Is there something different about that that could have an effect on on uh, epigenetic constructs that would be conveyed to the next generation? So um, it's extremely complex. And again, it's um, if you see my desk, I, it's covered with papers uh, from the literature um, looking at various aspects of this. Extremely interesting. But, but very complex. That would be epi paperwork. You've got this paperwork covering the layer <laughs> right, of your exactly. desk. Yeah, on top of my desk, yes. <laughs> on top of your desk. Okay, we want to be careful to stress to parents, though, at least I want to be careful to stress to parents, that not to, uh, the, bl- the blame should not be laid on parents. So often genetics are, are talked about like something that just, fell out of the sky, was hardwired, it's the parents' fault, it's genetics, but we need to look at the environmental influences on the parents and if they were exposed to Minamata or Chernobyl or goodness knows what, that's still an epigenetic situation. Would you agree? Oh, yes, yes, obviously. Um, there, are, there are certain causations that I mean, if you if you choose to smoke, well, that's one environment. That's a factor you can control. But where you live, uh, what you diet, and especially when we don't know the effects of 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 these things, um, we don't find out till till years after the effect. Uh, and yeah, in, in in no way is this to put a blame on any certain um, uh, gender or parent or such. And to be honest, it's we're not excluding the the father's role in this, there there is a paternal contribution in in other disease processes. It's just that I think um, mothers being carriers of of children are the most obvious place to to start or or look. But obviously, it's it it takes two to make a child, so there is a genetic contribution from two people, not just not just one. Um, and we're certainly not saying this is. This is all about genetics, obviously. In fact, that's the whole point. Uh, there's 
similar why do two people with with very similar genetics have such different outcomes and again it, it comes down to uh, what we think um, you know if it's not genetics it may be environment and so what's different about their environment um, so it again uh, it's not a system whereby we're looking to assess blame it's it's trying to find factors and uh, areas that we can control to address a very uh, stressful and dire situation. Yeah, we can definitely uh, try to control the environment, but so many, you know, forces uh, don't want to control the environment for financial or whatever reasons. We don't have to get into that, but it really perturbs me, you know, that uh, I'm sure that, like in the case of MTHFR, um, these gene polymorphisms just didn't pop up in a whole bunch of people, you know, one day, a couple decades back or something. They were there. What happened to influence those? So we do need to take a good hard look at the environment. Before we go to break, let's determine why nutrigenomic profiling of patients is so important. Basically to find out what what works. Um, Again, I think... We've kind of come full circle. In the old days, it used to be your family doctor came by and he was totally focused on you and your family and and, and emphasizing health and such. Now, healthcare has gotten to where we look at populations, and um, there's that disconnect between the health provider and and the patient. Usually caused by the doctor being overwhelmed, having so many patients, and there's only so much time and resources available per patient. Now, I think. We're, we're looking, again, that let's make medicine more personal. I don't think we're there yet. We're actually looking, I think we're to the point where we have uh, what I call groupings. We, we put people in, in groups. You know, are they, what's their cholesterol number? What's their blood pressure reading? And by then, we, we start putting them in groups. They're not completely individuals, but we can group them by some, some particular method. And so I think, um, um, again, once, and we don't have all the genetic um, assays and the genetic protocols and methodology in place yet to completely um, look at a person, take a, take a blood sample and say, oh, you have certain sort of genetic um, makeup. The, the completion of the Human Genome Project 10 years ago was a big step forward. So we, we know... We know the general. We know the we know the general construct of of human genes, but now we've got to figure out what they do, what they produce, and the subtle um, changes from individual to individual, or at least from group to group. And the reason is because some drugs don't work in certain peoples. Some nutrients don't produce the same effects in some groups. So we have to find out because it's. It would be a horrible thing to give someone something that we assume will help them, and we find out because they have a subtle change in their in their epigenetic construct that that particular thing won't work or has a has a, a completely opposite effect. So that is why um, I believe this is so important. Like they have a medic, metabolic pathway where a particular nutrient's going to clog up the works and ke- instead of keeping the cycle going forward. Sure. Okay. Very good. And the take-home message here again 
is that it's better to know more about your child's individualized makeup than using a throw-the-spaghetti-against-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks approach. That's good application. Okay. We will be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Devin Houston. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for New Reflections, featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston, and we're having a fascinating conversation, including the importance of nutrigenomic profiling and epigenetics, and we're going to try to make it over to to enzymes. We may need to invite Dr. Houston back, and the website is www.houstonenzymes.com. Did I get that right? Yeah, that'll do it. Easy to remember. Okay, so how does food interact with the genome at the molecular, cellular, and systemic levels? Um. Okay, well, there's, there's three, three levels. Um, you have to think about why we eat in the first place. Uh, one is to provide energy for our body to work. So we derive the, the glucose, which powers our brain, uh, which provides the ATP for all the different pathways to, to, to work and neurons to fire and such. The other is, uh, is redox or, or um, reduction oxidation mechanisms. Basically, the balance between um, oxidative stress and antioxidants uh, type thing. So we want to keep that a balance. We don't want to go one way or the other or too far. We want to kind of keep it in the middle. And again, we, we are now finding that um, nutrients in, in um, different foods can affect um, 
pathways, cellular signaling, hormonal mechanisms. Um, they bind receptors. They, they affect um, uh, protein kinase or phosphorylation mechanisms. And all these are, are, are triggers to, to um, lead to some overall effect. Uh, Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, said, said let, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. So, I, again, I think we're, we're coming back to that, that food is not just something we stuff in our mouth because we like it. It, it has to play a role. And um, I think to know more about our food, what's in it, um, the good food versus the bad food, um, again, we can start to understand how we're affecting systems on a, on a cellular level and on a microcellular level. Very good. So you have the, the food interaction, but then you need to layer in the influence of digestion. So what's the influence of that, and how does the health of the gut provide or deprive the components necessary for digestion? Well, it makes... Um, it, if you eat something and, and it stays in the form that you first ate it, it's not going to do you any good. The whole process of digestion is basically to, to break down something that's in a large, complex form to a small, um, simple form. So carbohydrate, carbohydrates get broken down into simple sugars. Proteins get broken down to peptides and amino acids. And that's what the body can use. Uh, you, uh, you can't put a banana on your, on your forearm and, and expect the body to use it that way. So you, there's a process of mechanical breakdown, then chemical breakdown, and then enzymatic breakdown. And that... Uh, then the idea of, of or how something is, is broken down, then we have to get to the area of how it, is it absorbed. You can have it broken down in the gut, but if it's not absorbed, it's just going to be, you know, waste thrown out with the, with the waste when you have a bowel movement. So you have to make sure that the gut is, is uh, in a healthy condition, condition of where the things that you ingest once they're broken down, can be absorbed and get into the bloodstream, get the particular organ and then to the particular cell um, where it's supposed to, to work. So, um, you know, digestion is going to determine the extent of caloric and nutritional uptake, basically. And let's talk about gut bugs, uh, the good, the bad, and the buggy. What oh, determines... Yeah the gut bacteria that a person will have, and what do the good bacteria do? What do the bad gut bacteria do? Well, um, this is really an important area. When, when we are first born, our guts are actually sterile, and we are, our moms inoculate us. When, when we go through the birth canal, we're, we're inoculated with our first dose of, of bacteria, uh, and hopefully it's good bacteria. So that's, that's our first... Um, first exposure and our first dose. As we get older, uh, environment and diet come into play. Um, you know, I remember being very, very young um, and not knowing any better and, you know, going outside eating dirt. Well, I probably, by doing so, I probably inoculated my gut with, uh, you know, some kind of soil bacteria. Um, hopefully it had no detrimental effect, um, but that just kind of illustrates our, our, where our, our exposure is. It's interesting, though, when, by the time we become adults, we have 150 times more bacterial genes than human genes. So, Wow. 
Yeah. Um, so, We're mostly bugs, aren't we? You know, we are. We actually have, you think about it, you, you, there's basically 150 people residing inside you. You could think in terms like that. But we're now understanding, and I mentioned this two-way communication now between the gut and the brain, and, and a lot of that communication involves or comes from the particular flora in our, in our gut. So that goes a long way toward um, um, providing how our gut reacts and then how the whole body reacts. And what's interesting is now is um, how does manipulation of the gut bacteria affect a particular health problem or overall health status? And that's the big question now. And that's, I think it's extremely important because right now we have um, many sources of different uh, good probiotic bacteria, but are they the right ones for any one particular individual? And is, again, how do we know that that particular strain that we're taking um, is actually staying that in our gut? Is it just there temporarily or is it colonizing our gut on a permanent basis? Um, do we need to change our bacteria from time to time? Uh, just interesting, and I think this is, this is a whole area of research that has become, just in the last five to ten years, extremely important and uh, is generating a lot of interesting research. So instead of I do what the voices in my head tell me to do, it should be I do what the voices inside my gut tell me to do. Uh, yeah, you, you basically go with your gut, you could say. Uh, you know, maybe that's where that expression came from. Um, your gut is talking to you in various ways. Sometimes it may be just, just by the way your gut feels after, after eating a certain food. And that's actually how we learn to self-limit. If, if I ate a, a, a particular fish one time, which I did, and I became violently ill a couple hours after that, then you can bet that I will avoid that particular food for many years to come. Um, so our gut is there to kind of protect us as well. And who knows, maybe the voices in our gut are, are maybe we should be listening to them more. But we, we know that there's a connection between the gut and the brain and that gut bacteria can influence what's going on in your brain and your output, for example, in the uh, in the example of uh, clostridia, and we we know too that people who have schizophrenia have improved with nutrition, nutritional therapy. How, and how does that work? Is it because the nutritional therapy is changing something in the gut, or the nutrients are changing something in the brain, or neurotransmitters, or what? Um, yeah, complex question, and I'll try to simplify the answer. The think of you have, you have many, many different types of bacteria in the gut, and they don't all coexist peacefully. They're all, they're all competing for the same resources, basically what you eat and what's broken down and what's left in the gut for them to feed on. That goes a long way in determining which, which flora, which bacteria win, or which are the predominant ones. And then based on particular factors that they produce, endogenous or, or, or I mean, uh, unique to that particular bacteria, then that determines to, to, a, to a, some, some part, we're not sure exactly how much, how the gut responds, uh, whether it's healthy. And then that, in turn, since the gut is also an organ of the immune system, that affects overall um, immune protection as well. So does that leave us susceptible to infection? Does it give us uh, an advantage over 
over not being susceptible to a certain infection. Um, don't know. But I think um, by changing a diet, you can change the, the, the population in your gut. By even using enzymes, you can, you can change the, the resources or, or what's left for the, for the bacteria to, to, to feed on. So in that way, we're, we're finding out that we can, to some extent, manipulate the, the gut flora. Now, we just have to know why we're doing it and if we're doing it in the right way. And that's the big question we need to find out. Okay. And so, ironically enough, we're probably going to need to go to the next show to talk about digestive enzymes. But to this point in this particular installment, what are some practical things that parents can do so far from what you've been talking about um, to help move their kids forward? I, I think just trust your, your motherly instincts. Um, it's good to have people telling you what worked for, for them, what worked for their child. And you can use that as a, as a guidepost to, to, um, on your journey to, to healing your, your child. But basically, you know, if, if you can keep a journal, if you can keep a record of, of causation and effect, what you do, you do, you do such and such cause and what kind of response do you get, then try to figure out what system is involved in that response. Is it the digestive system based on, based on um, you know, how well-formed his, his um, feces are during a bowel movement? Is there a behavioral component involved? Is there something you, you can see, um, smell, or feel in your child? And, uh, and that is, will go a long way. And, uh, again, you know, you know your child, you know where he is, you know his environment. So take all that into, into consideration as well. But, again, the whole thing about autism, um, we have that little pen for a reason. It is a puzzle. And the more pieces you have to work with, the more likely you are to, to get a com- complete, um, completed puzzle. You're absolutely right about that journaling uh, idea. There is journaling software out there. Um, I know a mom of a recovered child, and they were really diligent about uh, taking notes, their um, therapy aides taking notes. Yeah, everything that went in the mouth and every behavioral output, and that child's recovered now. So uh, that's a really good idea. And sometimes it's easy to lose track of something that happened. I was talking to a mom whose child's communication had gone up nicely, and then you know some weeks later she realized we uh, the the practitioner used some essential oils that promote excretion of toxins. And there was a jump in communication after that. So journaling is good. It helps you remember things that happened, and then you can correlate it with, uh, with behavioral output as long as there are no confounding factors. So we will be right back with Dr. Devin Houston of Houston Enzymes when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On mind, brain, and body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston of Houston Enzymes, www.houstonenzymes.com. We've been having a really interesting conversation about nutrigenomic profiling, epigenetics, gene expression, and everything but enzymes, which is what I'm going to caption this show, everything but enzymes. But he's coming back on March 6th, and then we promise we're going to be talking about digestive enzymes and how that can help your child and how it works into everything we've been talking about today. So... Um, Dr. Houston, let's talk about, you were talking about how diet can encourage or discourage the bugs we were talking about, and we know that the gut is connected to the brain. We hear about terms like peptides and receptors, which reminds me, we promised in the beginning of the show we were going to get back to the opiates and the opioids. Um, What are those, and what do they have to do with the foods our kids eat and the behaviors we see? Well, um... You know, a lot of people can relate to the the thing about taking or drinking a warm glass of milk <clears throat> at night to become sleepy, which actually the thought repels me since I'm lactose intolerant. But um, what we find, there are certain foods with certain proteins um, that during digestion, they're partially broken down and they exert um, bioactivities very similar to to other substances, and one pep, peptide are the are the opiate-like peptides. So there's like the casomorphin and the glutamorphins and stuff, which actually interact with with um, with peptides receptors. Receptors are proteins found in cell membranes, and they sort of latch on to specific ligands or compounds, and when they do that, they produce an effect. So morphine binds to the opiate receptor, and you get um, you know, analgesic effects and um, all sorts of stuff. So in the same way, um, peptides can can um, do the same thing. And, and, food, and depending on the, the type of food, uh, egg yolk can produce um, peptides that seem to help with uh, increasing gut immunity, um, anti Hypertensive peptides can be produced from certain food proteins as well. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the foods we're talking about um, also produce um, 
our food intolerances. And whether or not these peptides are involved in that, we're not sure. That's still a, a little bit of a controversial subject. But it's interesting to me that um, our ancestors seem to know more about food as medicine than we do now. And it's coming, again, full circle, that maybe these foods are not just there for us to enjoy or fill our stomachs, but they actually produce a, a, a specific effect. So, um, and it, a lot of times these effects are, are more modulating. You know, instead of morphine, which is a, produces a strong um, effect, maybe the, the endogenous or the exogenous food peptide, opiate peptide, produces a, a more a gentle type effect. And I think that's kind of the whole idea of, of food-derived nutrition and using food as, as, a, as a source of, uh, of treating a particular health problem. Um, but again, we have to identify those things. Uh, green tea contains phenols or isoflavones in soy and other type of uh, uh, grains such. Um, I'm trying to think of all the different ones. Um, there's just an abundance of, of, of those. Uh, curcumin and, and turmeric uh, is found to go through a certain specific cell signaling pathway that affects certain cytokine to be produced and then has an anti-inflammatory effect. So um, it's these type of things. And nutrition, when I was back in the 80s when I was in med school, nutrition was sort of the, the uninteresting, unsexy, no one wanted to go there because it was considered boring. Now, um, 30 years later, we're looking at all the, the relevant and, and exciting developments that are coming out of nutrition research. So a lot of us are going back to uh, with an, uh, an enhanced appreciation of the, the compounds that we can find in, in food. So uh, it's quite an interesting, exciting time for, for those of us uh, who call ourselves biochemists. Well, thank you for for summing that up really nicely. I would agree that our ancestors knew of food as medicine. They they didn't have a pharmacy on every corner, so I guess they needed to resort to something natural and healthful like food. And uh, what I want to know is, do we have any digestive enzymes that will break down those fries in the museum that seem to never break down, no matter how long they're left out? Um, yeah, uh, interesting to to think about. It would be it'd be he- helpful if we did have that. <laughs> well, um, you uh, you've talked about cellular sig- signaling, and and just to close, one of the nutrients that we hear so much about and so much um, about the importance of is folate. Uh, we've heard about that growing up, and so far as preventing neural tube defects, and why is it important to know about that in the case of autism? Well, that seems to be one of the areas that is getting a lot of attention right now. Um, there are several prominent researchers. Jill James uh, here in Arkansas is actually doing a lot of research on, on looking at what folate does. And it's, it's more than just uh, you know, neural tube defect or, or spina bifida. Um, with autism... It's all, folate is kind of the, the hub of, of, of what we've 
been seeing anecdotally and just through doctor and parent observation. Um, folate is involved in so many um, pathways. You, you mentioned the MTHFR gene, and there are many, many variations of that gene. One interesting study I found um, among Brazilian women who had a certain variation of that gene, uh, it made them a little more susceptible to cancer if they took high levels of, of folate. Um, and that wasn't found, but that wasn't duplicated in, in other cultural studies like Japan and Korea. So again, it, it's, it's showing the role of environment and culture in their particular genetic makeup. Now, what concerns me about folate, uh, there is um, a movement about to, and again, this is sort of the knee-jerk overreaction we get with our, our medical system, that um, we should be putting folate into all our foods. Well, my concern is, um, you know, folate is, it, you know, as far as preventing spina bifida, that only is going to be helpful in the first three months of, of the embryo's life. Afterwards, what are, we don't really know what the effect of taking large amounts of folate is going to have on, the, on a, an adult or a child. So I'm, I'm just a little cautious that we, you know, don't use the more is better um, dogma to, to cause something that we don't want to happen. So I'm very hopeful. I think the, the area of folate research is going to be extremely helpful to those dealing with autism as well as other uh, health problems. Um, again, we have to start understanding um, exactly how much and what exactly is it going to help, who is it going to help, and who is it not going to help. Well, I know many kids who are benefiting from uh, folinic acid, uh, but that's folinic. So you also want to look at the, co- the form of the nutrient that you're getting. And, of course, as Dr. Houston alluded to, any significant regimen um, that you're going to begin or change, please do that under appropriate medical oversight. Dr. Houston, do you have any take-home messages or closing remarks you'd like to share with our listeners today? Um, no, that was a good point to make. I'm glad you made that. Um... Uh, again, I, my point, and I always try to close with, with this, I tell parents, please be skeptical of anything you hear, anecdotally or even from a quote-unquote professional. Um, I, I myself uh, love to debate. Um, I love someone to question my work and my understanding of things. It helps me to be better. And uh, I, I think this is something we need to, to encourage. But parents need to learn to take control of their life and their child's life. And so question, question authority. Ask them why we're doing that and what's the reasoning, what's the data behind it. And I think that will go a long way in establishing credibility between um, the parent and the caregiver as well. And parents certainly are experts on their own children and should be interacting with providers who respect that and them in that manner. So thank you for bringing that to light, Dr. Houston. Thank you for being with us today. It is my pleasure, Terry. And Dr. Houston is presenting on Friday, May 25th at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2012 Conference in Chicagoland. Please register at www.autismone.org. He is having a truly excellent article coming up in Autism Science Digest magazine, the April issue, special edition, and that will um, be on newsstands April 3rd. 
at fine retail outlets. It's also available via subscription. Please check www.autism1.org. He's going to be back with us here on March 6th as well. If you're in the Southern California area and surrounding states, you may want to catch Autism One SoCal at Health Freedom Expo, March 2nd through 4th in Long Beach. Three days of speakers and panels on biomed, advocacy, and more. That website, www.healthfreedomexpo.com. We're really excited to be teaming up with the Health Freedom Expo folks. Alex Doman is back next week talking to me about all things auditory. Thank you to this program's sponsor, OxyHealth, and to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. 